Welcome to episode 54 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crevat, and each week I publish a new episode with a new climate champion as my guest. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at www.crevatenergyinnovations.com. And if you didn't catch episode 51, it's a humorous rap tribute to Elon Musk called Musk Rap Love. If you haven't listened to it, please do. I think you will really enjoy it. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. For those of you that were able to attend Distributech, I'm sorry I missed you. I heard it was awesome. I'll be there next year for sure. I mean, come on, it's in San Diego. This week, my featured guest is Daniel Palkin, a conservative outreach fellow with Citizens Climate Lobby. He's also graduating with a PhD in physics, doing research on quantum measurement and statistical analysis techniques for dark matter detection Ooh, at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Citizens Climate Lobby, CCL, is a nonpartisan grassroots organization that works to bring both parties together around large-scale, effective climate solutions at the national level. They currently have a bill in the U.S. House of Representatives, H.R. 763, which puts a price on carbon, drawing greenhouse gas emissions down 90% by 2050, and returns the money to the taxpayers. Welcome to The Climate Champions. I'm Lee Crevat, and I'm talking to Daniel Palkin. He's a conservative outreach fellow at Citizens Climate Lobby. He's also getting his PhD in physics, specifically dark matter, this summer at the University of Colorado Boulder. Daniel, welcome to The Climate Champions. Thank you so much, Lee. Really glad to be on. Awesome. What was the motivating moment that made you want to do something about climate change? Hmm. I think I'm going to answer not in the form of a moment. I think it was a it was a somewhat gradual thing for me that took place over a few years. I had really gone into physics, a true believer that I wanted to kind of just develop man's understanding of the physical world and kind of do research or teach potentially in that field. And it was kind of the the kind of the gradual buildup of politics in 2015 and 2016, which left me just kind of not happy with where the the state of the conversation in America around climate and a number of other issues were. And simultaneous to that, the the research I do looking for dark matter is almost it's almost an ironic counterpoint to kind of the practical stuff that I felt needed to be done in the real world. It's really fascinating research. The people who do it, my colleagues are are hardworking, great and intelligent people. But I felt that I was working very hard to solve a problem that I couldn't see the the payoff of. I would love to live in a world where our biggest problem is that we don't know what constitutes the dark matter that kind of floats around in and between galaxies. But I figured a better way to achieve that goal would be to to work to create the world where that is one of our bigger problems. And so over time, I joined the Citizens Climate Lobby, and it was, I guess, the moment, if I had to, to maybe put my finger on one, was just kind of that first meeting I went to and realizing that this was not what I imagined it to be. 
it wasn't people kind of sitting around and being despondent. It was a ton of people who were action-oriented, who came from all different fields. You had scientists like myself, you had economy-oriented people, you had just kind of everyday citizens who felt it was their civic duty. And it was that first meeting and the ones that followed that showed me that there was a a way to act on this issue that that was was in concert with all the things I believed to be good about America and and that I held as ideals. And I kind of never looked back. Your title is Conservative Outreach Fellow. And my understanding is that CCL, Citizens Climate Lobby, is a combination of conservative and liberal. That's right. And that's a little bit unique, not entirely unique these days, which is good in the in the climate space. But traditionally, we think of the climate space as, as being further left. There's a lot, of, a lot of reason to believe that that is not going to be sufficient as a way forward. Just on, on general principle, you always want as much broad agreement as you can when dealing with kind of civilizationally threatening issues like climate change. But more pertinent, there was a study that came out in the, that recently that looked at kind of all of the major legislation that was passed in the United States between the late 1970s and, and sometime in the 2000s. And what they found pretty convincingly was that there was almost no legislation. We're talking like of the, the several hundred largest bills, some, some modest single digit number of them had kind of been gotten through Congress without significant bipartisan support, actually majority buy-in from the minority party. And so there's this growing view in the climate movement that, that first of all, it's, it's really necessary to get buy-in from both sides of the aisle on whatever policy America adopts. But second of all, there's this is part of the work I do. There's real reason for optimism here, but we shouldn't let our optimism get out in front of us. There's a lot of work to do in creating a space where particularly conservatives feel empowered to engage on climate change as an issue which is kind of maximally aligned with conservative values. To me, it might be the case that you can push through with just one party a bill or a movement for the country, but it's not going to last very long if every time the other party gets in power, they change the rules of the game. So I really think when something is this important, no matter who you are, we want you to be engaged in helping to fight and win this challenge really to the world, not to a specific country. Yeah, I mean, this is honestly best viewed as a common threat that all of us face. The U.S. historically has responded well when we've been faced by a common external threat. And this is no exception from that. Maybe the only exception is that the threat isn't coming in a specific way from from one other hostile foreign actor. It's coming from the way we produce our energy. And it's it's a threat that there's a tremendous opportunity in the, the ability of us to combat it. There's an opportunity for us to establish ourselves even more so than in the past as leaders of of a world that, that champions freedom and the ability of individuals to keep living in the style that they've become accustomed to. It may be silly to talk about a science fiction movie or a science fiction series, but what they tend to have in common is a common enemy to the earth to allow the earth to rally and work together, number one, to achieve some kind of peace and to achieve a rallying call that everybody can get behind and move as one species. But so far, we haven't really done that here. Yeah, if you look to the people who would have the most expertise in that framing, the the military, for example, the U.S. military, they're quite hawkish on climate. The way they talk about it 
And this is just not a fact on the ground that has gotten to kind of most Americans outside of the the kind of climate movement. But the military is quite open with their belief in man-made climate change. And they call it a threat multiplier, which is to say that if you have an already unstable region where people are in conflict over resources or for whatever reason, and then you just dial up the screws in a world where things are hotter or there's more drought, That's a security concern for America because America has a presence in a lot of the world and for a lot of the world to be that much more unstable in such a broad and general and pervasive way is something that that is is concerning. In the last lobby trip I took to Washington, D.C., I had one of my friends who's a veteran in some lobby meetings that I was in, and he was able to speak from experience to conservative congressional offices about where his concern was coming from. And, and it's that type of stakeholder and that type of constituent, which is, is one essential voice among many on the conservative side of the conversation, pulling us towards climate solutions. Can you talk about personal reasons that have caused you to be engaged or more engaged? Yeah. First and foremost, I'm a young person. I'm still in my 20s. I'm getting my PhD. I have a long, hopefully, life and career ahead of me. And looking looking at that, not just through the lens of my own life, but if I choose to have kids and, and, and they choose to have kids, I don't have to go many generations to start reaching the point where where the scientists say... Everybody, even in my neck of the woods, in a, in a relatively well-resourced country like the United States, will need to, to kind of elevate climate as an immediate concern to near the top of their list. So I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm doing this out of self-interest, but kind of the empathy-driven, I can imagine the effects of this happening to me just in a simple human way, gives this, this issue a sense of urgency and, and imminence. That I think if I if I just tried if I had to try to wrap my head around well this is going to be an issue for 15 generations from now or something maybe I'd be able to do it but it'd be a lot harder. Part of what you do in your role is convince people that don't necessarily believe in the science or believe in the data that they need to and that it's important. How do you make that argument? I think the first thing to do is not to talk about the science or the data. And it, it pains me to say that as a scientist and as a person who who has, has taken a look at the data in, in what capacity I can. I'm not a climate scientist, but found it to be compelling and just a in its own way, a triumph of science to have to have figured so much of this out. And I think I think your previous guest, who was also part of CCL's conservative caucus and a physicist that you had on this podcast, Larry Peranich, I think he he maybe talked about this. There was a study that came out a year or two ago that showed that people aren't convinced by studies and by data. And my first response to that was, well, that doesn't seem convincing. And then I was like, oh, wait. So I, I think the, the moral here is that going to people with data and, and going to people with numbers for, for something that's as, as complex and hard to understand as climate in particular, maybe for a, a smaller or more isolated problem, this applies less, is not the right approach. The right approach is creating a culture where the messengers that people have on this issue who are, who are spreading a, a pro-climate action message are trusted messengers. And there's not an easy way to do that. There's not a magical way to become a trusted messenger for someone. It involves connecting with them personally or through service or through in some way demonstrating and having them demonstrate back to you that you have shared values and then starting to have the conversation. And there's still pro- there still might be disagreement, but a lot of it is is talking to the people who you know who might disagree with you and coming at it in a respectful and compassionate way 
and not falling into the usual political traps we set for ourselves of berating people or treating skepticism as as ill-motivated or anything like that. What does that approach look like for you personally? So I speak to my own life and personal experience as a scientist. This is not an approach that works for everyone because not everyone is a scientist. But I have a unique vantage point having for the past five plus years done scientific research published in many of the same peer-reviewed journals that, that climate scientists publish in. I've developed in that time a perspective about how the scientific process is practiced and generated, and I've seen the human failings in it, and I've seen it's it's relatively good relative to other forms of inquiry ability to correct for that. Now we're getting a little close to talking maybe about something proximate to the science, so I pull back from it and talk about my respect for my colleagues, which comes from a very genuine place. The people I work with in physics are scrupulous. They look very hard at a problem. They're not quick to make a claim that they're not sure of. And they're just overall good and decent people who are, who are skeptical people who aren't quick to be self-deceived or anything like that. And I I, I say in my own head, because this is the argument that convinces me. I like to look at numbers and see things myself. I'm, I'm somewhat skeptical in that sense before I make an evaluation. The argument that really convinces me on this is, well, the climate scientists down the hall, they're kind of from the same grad student cohorts and the same postdoc cohorts that myself and my my colleagues come from. And it's just, as a, as a thought experiment, it's ludicrous to imagine that myself and the scientists who I work with, very careful and scrupulous and in trying to do our best by our profession and our work, somehow have, have kind of split off from a group of people who are just like us, who are all kind of in on some conspiracy or all self-deceived or all victims of some sort of groupthink. I think science is not a flawless field that gets things wrong. Science, in a sense, should, shouldn't be treated as, as final with a capital F, but it's good enough and it's, it's a, for, for, a type of, for the type of problem like diagnosing climate change, the personal knowledge I have of the, the people and the type of people who engage in that work is I think actually more convincing to me than even the data that I have been able to look at in a cursory way evaluate as somebody with an adjacent scientific knowledge. Does that does that make sense? It does make sense. And I think it will be even more clear after you talk about what CCL does and what you do for them specifically. Mm, okay. I think we've we've mentioned the bipartisan part, but more broadly, Citizens Climate Lobby or CCL. We're a nonpartisan, nonprofit grassroots organization, which is devoted to empowering the citizens of our democracy to know how to, to best exercise their political power, in our case, for the specific goal of advancing bipartisan legislation that meaningfully addresses climate change. So we were founded in the late aughts, and we've been around for a bit over 10 years now. Our founder actually tragically just passed away the last week, but he was a fascinating and amazing man. His name was Marshall Saunders. His background story is he did microfinance. He was a philanthropist in the third world and came to realize that a lot of the good he was trying to do and was was doing was going to be jeopardized or even undone by a changing climate, which would impact the third world first and foremost, and decided to switch some of his focus to 
an organization that is international, but mostly right now in the U.S. and Canada, and capable of building broad consensus to address climate. So from the early days, that was how CCL was founded. I wasn't there at the time in CCL, but there was, I guess, I guess a little wandering in the desert phase when it wasn't clear exactly what policy was the right policy for the organization to support. But somewhere along the line, they were sold on a policy which is called carbon fee and dividend, essentially. So the carbon fee, and we can talk in much more detail about this, essentially puts a price on the extraction of fossil fuels in proportion to how much they emit. And the dividend is you take the money from that fee and you give it back to the the taxpayers. And this is what's known as a market-based solution. So rather than a top-down approach where the government picks which technologies and sectors are, are better and worse, part of the bipartisan appeal of this is that this is very technology agnostic. It just says we know a little bit about what outcome we want, which is meaningfully less emissions. And we're going to let the market figure out how to get there. The dividend part makes it especially bipartisanly appealing because you could imagine there are carbon tax proposals that take the money and use it for government programs of some sort. And growing government for for reasons listeners might or might not agree with is something that many conservatives are very skeptical of. So taking the money and having a revenue neutral bill, something that that doesn't change the, the revenue of the federal government, that doesn't grow the debt or anything like that and gives it back just directly to people on an equal basis turns out to be something which corrects one of the the usual common flaws in carbon pricing policy while not opening the pandora's box of letting 535 washington politicians get their hands on a very large pot of money so that's that's ccl's backstory i've talked a little bit about the bipartisanship and that's the policy we support there's a lot more i could talk about in terms of how we do that does that all make sense Yes, and I'd like to hear more of the specifics. Ah, about the bill? Yes. Yes, okay, so let's let's dig into it. So currently, so this, this carbon fee and dividend policy was introduced in late 2018 in both the House and Senate and has since been reintroduced in the House. All three introductions had some measure of bipartisanship among the original co-sponsors. So I think the original 2018 bill was three Democrats, two Republicans, and the Senate companion was one Democrat, one Republican. The current bill was introduced by six Democrats and a Republican in the House. And it's called, again, the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act, or HR 763 is its number. And we're looking for, for a bipartisan pair, duo to introduce it in the Senate, so, so stay tuned for that. What the bill does is the price it puts on the extraction of fossil fuels is $15 per ton of CO2 or CO2 equivalent. We don't just cover CO2. Other greenhouse gases have different CO2 equivalent warming levels that they they contribute. And so we also are, are capable of putting a price on those in many circumstances. Like methane. Yes, like methane, yeah. The price rises at $10 per ton of CO2 per year. And it does that until we reduce emissions by 90%, which is it, for, for a rate of increase that steep projected by the economists to be around 2050. When I say a dollar per ton of CO2, that's probably that when I when I first got into this field, that was a, a somewhat meaningless unit for me. But all it means is basically order of well, roughly a, a penny per gallon of gasoline at the pump, except it's not just applied to, to gasoline and indeed other petroleum products. It's applied to coal at a steeper rate because coal emits more CO2 per kilowatt hour of energy we extract. And it's applied to natural gas as well at a, at, a, at a slightly lower rate, but it's applied to all these different fossil fuels in exact proportion to how much CO2 they emit when you burn them. 
And in that sense, it's it's going to create a, a smooth transition off of fossil fuels and onto cleaner energies as the as the price gets dialed up. Then the second part is taking the money and giving it back to everyone. That's the step I've discussed, which is very simple and very non-opening Pandora's boxy, has all the, the kind of bipartisan appeal of not growing government, and also corrects what is the most common complaint about carbon taxes, which is that carbon taxes are typically regressive, which is to say applying a, a price on carbon, most however you do it, is going to, to impact the wallets of poorer folk fractionally more than of richer folk. But giving a flat dividend with the money raised back to everybody uniformly is actually more progressive than the carbon price itself is regressive slightly. So the kind of slight upshot of the fee plus the dividend is a slightly progressive tax policy. But it's not generically so. So if you're a billionaire who wants to live in your solar-powered igloo and doesn't fly your private jet too much, you can make $50 off this policy just like the next guy. So it's it's truly kind of merit-based in terms of how much pollution your actions contribute. And so it kind of creates a financial incentive, not only for individuals, actually mostly for companies and for, for larger entities to find ways to get onto cleaner energies. The third pillar of the bill is we then have an adjustment at the border. So it's as if we apply the tax to incoming goods at the border and rebate the tax to outgoing goods if they're carbon intensive. And we don't do this crucially to countries which have their own roughly equivalent carbon price. So if you're trading with us and you don't have a carbon price, your companies are giving United States citizens lots of money and you as a country are incentivized to put your own price on carbon to ensure that that doesn't happen and to keep the money for yourself. And so this can be, this is viewed by, by many former secretaries of state like James Baker and George Shultz, who are under George H.W. Bush and Reagan and by democratic economists and leaders as well as one of the most compelling mechanisms we can think of to peacefully facilitate a global transition off of CO2. Well, I really like the dividends. I love the import-export because it really does give the United States a way to affect others. I'm a little bit concerned with the fee part because it seems to increase slowly, and it seems to me that the issue we're facing has become more urgent. I would not say the increase is slow. So so I guess the question is slow relative to what? I think the relative benchmarks here are what is politically achievable and the scope of the problem. And on both counts, I think our bill is a, a fairly aggressive one. On the count of what has been politically considered and, and what other bills are on the table, most bills increase by a fractional amount. And when you start them low, that fractional amount is often a very slow increase. So there's a there's a, a policy that might get in, in introduced as a bill, which is $40 per ton start, but a 5% increase per year, and that, that amounts to $2. Our $10 rate of increase, putting a dollar amount on the rate of increase, is actually just a quick and dirty way to get the bill to kind of go up quite rapidly. And then as for kind of are we reducing emissions commensurate with the problem, well, the IPCC 1.5 report gave a recommended range of, of carbon prices, which are quite aggressive. And ours reaches, in a relatively short time scale, the lower end of that and gets us about 90% off of carbon, at least in the the energy and power producing sectors, which is where most of our carbon pollution comes from by mid-century. So it gets us about 90% of the way to to kind of the, the IPCC prescription in its more aggressive 1.5 degree report. So 
it's probably not everything we need to do, but but people in CCL say it's a it's a very good first step, and it leaves the debate open after that for more policy. Certainly, one of the reasons I appreciate it very much is because it's bipartisan, and if you can get both parties to agree what they are saying inherently in approving it and voting for it, is that this is a real threat that we need to do something about. And that's something that we haven't really had, at least in a visible way, to the American public. Yeah. I don't want to overstate how optimistic we should be. There is a lot of work to do. And if listeners want to help with that work, joining the Citizens Climate Lobby, we have about, we have like 550 chapters, mostly again in the US and Canada. That's a good way to help doing the work. So the, the, the problem is very much in our hands to deal with. But right now we have that one Republican co-sponsor. There are other Republicans that have either co-sponsored previous versions or co-sponsors is, is just a lower bound on how many would vote for your bill. But we certainly need to get more. And actually, we're having a lobby day. One thing I'm one thing I'm eager to talk about is we're having a conservative lobby day where almost 100, about 80 of our of our right of center, so Republican, Libertarian, some independents are going to Washington, D.C. And on February 4th, we're going to have meetings set up and we're going to go in to as many Republican offices as we can. And we're going to talk to them about the bill. And the important thing, this is our first, We've CCL always has done lobby days. This is kind of the the beating heart of our of our strategy is is getting constituents from in district into into meetings with offices. But the idea our, our conservative caucus we call it has grown large enough that we're really at a point where we can convene conservatives who are climate friendly from across the country, kind of have a day for for everyone to, to meet up in D.C. and then have a day where we all do this together and sending exclusively people who are aligned to at least to a large degree with whatever whatever politician's office they're going into be the messengers to those politicians we have found makes a real difference in how we're received and how and how the conversations go. Can you talk about your prior background? It sounds like you're doing a lot of work lobbying. Was that something you've ever done before? Uh, so actually, the the answer here, which I hope is an encouraging one for listeners, is that I wasn't. All that I know I learned from CCL in this respect. When I first joined, I didn't even really have a good idea of what lobbying was. I mean, I assumed, and to a large degree it is, something that professional paid people do. The idea of a citizen lobbyist kind of combining the role of citizen, but taking it upon yourself to kind of be very active in that right to petition our government part of the Constitution and going into congressional offices is a skill which is amazing to develop. And I think this is true no matter where you are on the political spectrum. If you value our democracy and you you value America, being able to to be a part of government even without devoting your your life or career to it necessarily is maybe best done by getting the trainings like like the one CCL gives on how to go into lobby meetings, how to how to approach them, how to prepare for them, what we think best practices are. And so we have we have a climate advocate training that we put our new volunteers through. And that that gets you ready to go in the door. But then I think there's the actual going in of the door. I think every citizen's climate lobby volunteer has their own first lobby experience story. And I think 
virtually all of us are terrified the first time in a lobby meeting, which is fine <laughs> because your first time when we have, we have different roles in the meeting. So, so there are roles that are like meeting lead and you're there to really facilitate the discussion or there, there are, you know, roles for people to really engage on specific asks and things we want them to do. And, and those can be, you know, more intimidating roles. So maybe often first time, often, you know, there's always more experienced people paired with less experienced people in a meeting, but then there's roles like note taker, which is actually a very important role. For, for a lobby meeting, somebody somebody whose job it is to just be very observant and write down basically what people are saying, but no pressure to talk as long as you're able to jot notes, at least legibly enough for yourself to type them up later on a, on a pad of paper, you can make a real contribution in a lobby meeting more than you would think just by listening. So I came in with no background doing this. And what's, what's really amazing is that while your first lobby meeting is terrifying, the half-life of, of the terrifyingness is relatively short. By the time you're in your your second, third, tenth lobby meeting with congressional staff, you start to be much more comfortable with them. You're still very respectful of the office and and of the opportunity to get to, to talk to them. But at the same time, that saying, which is popular in America, which is that they really do work for us. It's taxpayer dollars and the government is here to serve the people. And there's a mutual relationship to be had between constituents especially and the people that they elected. It's, it's an empowering and gratifying thing to be in those meetings. And it's something that, at least in my case and in the case of the people I know, Citizens Climate Lobby has kind of been able to, to build up from scratch in us. And I'm very grateful for that. It sounds like you've really learned to be a lobbyist. Can you talk about setbacks that you've had doing it? Yeah, so I, I think I'll, I'll interpret your question to mean setbacks and challenges more broadly, like genuine challenges that we face in this bipartisan climate space. We are fighting an uphill battle. America has has many problems right now, and none of those problems are people have too generous an attitude towards each other or people are too eager for bipartisan cooperation. We think that under the surface, there's a lot of that desire. But kind of on the surface, the, the default mode of our politics has, has sadly become very nasty. One challenge we face is making the case to people, both potential new volunteers, as well as congressional offices and other stakeholders and, and community leaders, that what we're trying to sell is something that has real efficacy to it, something that can really, that doesn't just sound good, but that actually works. And we can talk about, but this this now would deviate totally in, in the opposite direction from the question you asked, what kind of the the achievements we have that, that are, are benchmarks of the success of our framing and our and our method. Well, that's the next question that's coming up. But I would say broadly that you do meet, you know, I don't want to sugarcoat it. You meet people when trying to talk about climate in kind of our current political landscape who are going to think that you're not representing their interests or you have some other motive in doing this and they will they will not always be nice to you. And I've I've experienced a few unpleasant encounters with people and I've I've always tried within myself to deal with them respectfully, to always remember that I have a lot of political beliefs and I'm probably getting a good fraction of them just wrong. And I would probably disagree with with someone who who even told me the right answer to my face. And in, in the climate case, I think we're on the right side of this advocating for, for what is a solution that can really work, but it doesn't mean, and I know I'm not being hyper-specific here just because I don't want to get into like, I had a conversation that this was said and then this was said and then this was said, but a lot of the, in the general form of an answer, a lot of the the setbacks you can face on climate in general, and then in particular when trying to build such broad coalitions 
essentially lie in trying to have a message that works across what is a very divided political spectrum at once. Okay, you wanted to talk about when there has been success, and I want to hear about that. So can you talk about success that CCL has had, but also success that you personally have had? I can even expand that to just talk about other indicators of success that are kind of in the bipartisan climate space. So maybe maybe even three categories. There you go. Um, but kind of success that success that CCL has had. There's a lot of examples to pull from. One that I one that I find compelling and that has a, a kind of cautionary tale twist at the end is the story of our engagement with Mia Love. So Mia Love is a or was a Republican Congresswoman from Utah. I think I think she bears the distinction of being the first African American. Republican congresswoman ever in the United States. And she was part of the Tea Party wave that came in and was was not seen by really by anyone at first as a natural ally of the climate movement. She she ran with rhetoric opposed to that. And CCL volunteers met with her and kind of formed a connection with her and Mia Love came out of this process a strong ally of CCL's, and she has some quotes which which really resonate with me. She has one which goes something like, Citizens Climate Lobby came to me and said, we have a problem and we're hoping you can help solve the problem instead of saying you're the problem. And that approach not only changed my mind about what I should be doing, but changed my heart about where I was on this. And Mia Love from that point forward was a, a strong ally and, and still is of of our cause. And then in the 2018 blue wave midterm elections, she lost by a few hundred votes. Sometimes you find a really strong ally and you earn a really strong ally through the cultivation of, of kind of shared experience and values. And then the, the nature of politics is you can lose a person who you work closely with in government. So that's that's kind of a, a success story that, that ultimately didn't end up as well as it could have, but it's an interesting story. Another story, and this is this is a little more broad, but it's just an indicator that I, I came across recently, which is a, a bit less of a personal story and just a bit more of a what's a what's a really a really interesting trend number we can look at in this space. And so Steve Scalise, who's from Louisiana, he's not a supporter of carbon pricing. In fact, he's he's so much not a supporter that every Congress he introduces a resolution which says we in the House of Representatives oppose any carbon tax legislation at all. From CCL's perspective, this is the opposite of, of where we want to see congressmen. And in 2013, when he first introduced that resolution, it had 155 co-sponsors. So kind of co-sponsor count is a good proxy for number of representatives that want to maximally take ownership of a bill, a policy, or a resolution. And so they want their names publicly associated with it. 2015, fast forward, he reintroduces the resolution in the new Congress. It still gets a healthy measure of co-sponsorship, I think around in the mid-80s. In in the next Congress, in the 2017 Congress, I think in 2018 he introduced it, and it got 55 co-sponsors. And then he reintroduced the resolution just recently in the 2019 Congress, and it got 24 co-sponsors. So 24 congressmen were, were looking to sign their, their names to a no-carbon tax resolution down steadily and sharply from 155 just a short little over half decade ago. That's a pretty amazing reduction. Yeah. And, and in that time, there's only, there's only one group I know of that is meeting multiple times a year with 
virtually every conservative office and that's ours and i'm not that's not ccl doesn't necessarily take get to take credit for that or not but we're part of the ecosystem that creates an environment where where conservatives are are more inclined to say wait a sec maybe 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 we're not there yet but that's an interesting it's it's hard to argue with those numbers at least on that front so you also asked about personal successes and where i felt that i've i've had breakthroughs in this space. I think one breakthrough I had is so myself and a friend were wondering we we had kind of in the we had a, we we had been engaging with the the college republicans on the CU campus and we were kind of just casual casual members of their chapter. We enjoyed the political discussions and we weren't sure if there was a conversation to be had about climate and we decided to ask for the time to make a presentation on it cuz we were both members of Citizens Climate Lobby. And we made that presentation, and in short order, the group had had signed onto a, a coalition of college Republican groups called Students for Carbon Dividends, which supports the same carbon pricing framework from which CCL's bill emerges, price, dividend, border adjustment, and then had had endorsed the Energy Innovation Act. So that was that was a, a kind of a special bit of conservative action that I was that I was able to be a part of, partnering with with the campus Republicans and and Citizens Climate Lobby. I think the, another another way that I've I've felt successfully empowered in this space is getting to work with with people on print media. So one thing that Citizens Climate Lobby does, one one of the levers of political influence we try to pull is writing letters and op-eds into local newspapers. And I'm a person who this this was kind of my initial involvement in Citizens Climate Lobby was was just penning a lot of opinion pieces. And I, I use this both as a way to advocate for the policy and as a way to develop my own understanding of it through writing. And I became a person that a lot of other people would ask for edits or advice on and getting to see a lot of those people get their first publications and feel the kind of same delight that I did when I got my first publication in a local or not so local paper has been a very special and empowering thing because it's, it's taking volunteers from kind of the first level of engagement to the second. Very nice. What is your vision of the future? Where do you think we're going to end up in the next 20, 30, 40 years? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I like to gamble. So I go to casinos and I play. And, and you know, I, 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 guess I, I guess I say that. What I really like to do is play poker. And people who play poker enough all insist that poker is not gambling. So listeners can be the judge of whether we have a problem or not. <laughs> but... That is to say, I like to, to formulate my thinking around the idea of what I place money on this at, at such and such odds or would I not do this. And it's a helpful, rational decision-making exercise for me. And all I know is that I wouldn't bet at high odds on success or failure on this front within the next several decades. I, I'm somewhere in the middle in terms of chance of success, which is to say, I think that it's in our hands to kind of determine our future. We're at a pivotal time in American and, and indeed in world history where the actions of politically engaged, well-intended people have a lot of, there's a lot of susceptibility to positive impact if we work hard and do our job right. But it's not a given. I don't think the moral arc of history is so is so benevolent that we can just kind of wash our hands and say, this is going to work itself out. So I think that the the chance of success is neither terribly good nor terribly bad, and it's incumbent upon us to, to do our best to bias it. Well, the other option is giving up, right? Either go for it or fold, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think the, the fold option is just, it makes no sense to me. Humanity has so much potential. 
even just kind of the the numbers you come across being in the climate space, the capacity of the, I think actually solar is the fuel that, you know, though it only accounts for a small fraction of the U.S.'s energy production at present, the amount of solar radiation that hits the Earth's surface every hour is enough to fuel our entire civilization for a year. And wind is also, you know, relatively high, but not nearly that high. And just the capacity to kind of grow in a healthy and clean way, the capacities of our species and, and all the future generations that our children and grandchildren, et cetera, will get to be part of if we succeed, makes the idea of somehow folding our hand seem very premature and silly and improductive and fatalistic. I agree. Do you have any questions for me? Ooh, do I have questions for you? Where do you fall on the attitudinal space? When you ask this question about where do, where do you see us in 20 to 40 years, I, I gather you ask that because that's a question you think about a lot and you ask every guest it. What is your own best guess as to what we can expect? It really depends on the last few people I've interviewed. <laughs> There's so much data that shows we're in a heap of trouble and that it's coming sooner rather than later. We're already in trouble. I mean, it's already happening but that more is going to happen. It's going to be more intense and more frequent that we have events related to climate change. So I don't sleep very well those nights when I'm thinking about that. On the other hand, sometimes I'm instead impressed about all the incredible people working to mitigate climate change, all the things they've discovered, the technologies they're working on, the companies they've built around trying to mitigate what's happening. So sometimes I'm so impressed by that, that I feel good. But I always come back to the idea that it's hold them or fold them and folding makes no sense. So we just have to play the hardest, best game we possibly can because this is the tournament of our lives. Yeah, actually one, of the, one thing you said in there really, really caught my ear. I tend to sound, I think relative to some people in the climate space, somewhat optimistic, and I, I view it as warranted. I've been asked about this by friends of mine and, and acquaintances, like, how can I work on the climate issue and think that there's a way out of it, given our politics? And the answer I always kind of come back to is people, like, just looking around myself at my friends and my colleagues and the people I went to, to school with and the people of my generation and it's not, you know, there's there's a lot of people across generations who are who are deeply concerned with doing good in this space. But I have heard nuclear physics professors say things like, I have never seen. It's new as of the past five years or decade. The number of my students who are flocking away from the high-paying jobs they could get and into jobs where they feel they will have an impact on, in particular, the climate issue. And I have myself just like looking at the people who are in their, their 20s and early 30s that I work closely with in Citizens Climate Lobby and how they how they orient themselves and their priorities and their careers and their service around this. It's like, thank God you're here. You're just in time. Uh, we have a big problem. And a lot of the I think I think there's a lot of hope, not just because the the younger generation cares about the issue, but because there's just a lot of technically competent people throwing themselves at it. And I'm not just by any means talking about the, the policy or politics of it. There's a host of people throwing themselves at it from the technology side and scientists, my colleagues who are who believe that the best way to, to approach this, that perhaps they're correct, is to, to invent the next thing or facilitate the development of technologies that, that will make it easier to transition. 
and yeah, just the, the, the kind of sheer scope of people and who they are and how they're approaching it that are throwing themselves at the climate issue. It's not like we're in this alone and it's, it's not like our numbers are small or that we're incompetent. Most people inherently want to make an impact with their lives. They just don't want it to be about just money or just climbing a ladder. They want to do something important. So once they understand the importance of this, and I think there's more and more evidence pointing to how important it is, Mm -hmm. it attracts people that have that burning desire to do something. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. There's a critique of kind of the personal action approach of, oh, I'm going to reduce my waste. And the, the critique goes something like, well, it's not enough to just do that. And that, that's correct. Um, well, if, if you like, you know, reducing your personal impact, you will love working to improve our politics and our policy as a nation around climate. I think it's great to give people a vehicle so that they can participate, even if they don't understand the issue very much or they don't have a plan of their own about what to do about it, you're providing that for them. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, being a being an organization, you know, I think I think part of the genius of the people, the founder and the 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 the, the, the chief executive of Citizens Climate Lobby is they found a way to set up an organization where the values and the goals and the 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 kind of respectful bipartisan approach was the bedrock and where large numbers of volunteers had the autonomy to approach the issue and do things the way they wanted. So within within CCL, you have chapters that are, are more conservative on the spectrum and more liberal, and different chapters function differently. And at the end of the day, we all come together, usually in Washington, to talk to our congressmen and, and tailor our, our, our message and approach to the offices we're in and, and build the relationships that over time we hope will pay off in the form of a meaningful part of the solution to the climate problem. Is there anything else that you want to say that we haven't covered? Not much, just that obviously I encourage listeners to check us out. Like I said, we have chapters most everywhere, especially for listeners in the U.S. And you can go to cclusa.org. You can also read about our policy at energyinnovationact.org. You can follow me on Twitter, Daniel at Daniel Palkin, or you can follow Citizens Climate Lobby on Twitter or other social media. And, you know, I hope to see some listeners at one of our conferences or lobby days, or if you're in Colorado at, at one of our chapter meetings here. And you have a lobby day coming up. Yep. We have the February conservative one coming up. So wish us luck. Good luck. And with that, <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to wrap this up. I'm going to wrap it up with a wrap. Daniel felt the <laughs> Daniel felt the impact of climate was bigger and fatter. It's not that dark matter didn't matter. If you want someone to say see you later, boggle their mind up with a lot of data. Daniel told a story about Mia Love. And how the climate solutions we want aren't going to come from above, but need to come from us. I don't know. I got more, man. Daniel told a bittersweet story of an ally CCL worked with called me a love. If you really want your message to have a lot of thrust, make sure your messenger has earned a lot of trust. You know, when you start talking about climate change, some people might start balking, <laughs> but maybe not if they're talking to Daniel Palkin. If you want a real, real impactful hobby, CCL will teach you how to lobby. If you want to bring climate change to an end, try a market-based fee and dividend. Another idea that you're trying to court 
is to put a cool kind of tax on import export. I'm still going. <laughs> this is incredible. I'm still going. Oh, keep going, please. Yeah. An anti-carbon tax politician had 155 co-sponsor counts, but now it's down to 24, a continuing lowering amount. Okay, I'm done. That's uh, that's absolutely fantastic. Uh, <laughs> I've never had anybody make a rap out of my climate advocacy before. Um, so this is a first, but hopefully not a last. The three pillars to the Citizens Climate Lobby Bill are Pillar 1, put a price on carbon. Pillar 2, return the money to the taxpayers. Pillar 3, effect world change by adjusting the price of goods at the border based on carbon intensity. And don't forget about Conservative Lobby Day, the first of its kind, where dozens of right-of-center, Republican, Libertarian, and some independent volunteers will be talking with Republican congressional offices about market-based solutions to climate change, and in particular, the CCL bill. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, visit my website at www.crevatenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe, rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. And if you're in San Diego and want to trade your concern about climate change for a few hours of some great laughs, most weekends I'm doing improv comedy at either the Old Town Improv Company or Finest City Improv or both. Contact me to confirm specific show dates. And if you want to release from some of life's stress or to improve your speaking skills, consider taking an improv workshop at an improv club in your town. I'm excited by Daniel's passion and dedication to making a difference, putting climate change mitigation above his dark matter research. I'm even more excited about his and CCL's effort to lobby for a nonpartisan bill that brings the parties together to acknowledge climate change, a critical step to mitigate climate change.